Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, hey there. How are you? Welcome back. Or if it's your first time, uh, welcome. Where you been? It's the 271st edition of Downtown, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Campbell here, along with Carrie Haskell. Two talented folks join us this week on the program. A little bit later on, comedian and Emmy Award-winning writer Josh Gondelman will talk about the current strike of writers and actors. He's a member of both unions, and will share his perspective on that. Up first, a talented writer of songs and short stories as well. Radney Foster has producing, been producing great music since uh, back in the late 80s when he burst on the scene with his partner Bill Lloyd, the very successful country duo of Foster and Lloyd, went on to record one of the seminal country albums of the 90s, Del Rio, Texas, 1959, and, and through the years has recorded a series of terrific albums, producing hits for other people like uh, Keith Urban, uh, the Dixie Chicks, Sarah Evans, and much more. He continues to make terrific music and was recently honored by his induction into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. We had a chance to talk about all of that with Radney Foster here on Downtown. I was looking back, I think we talked with you just about three years ago, yeah, right in the middle of, well, in the beginning stages of the whole COVID thing. Oh, yeah. It was it was a nutty time. Um, the, uh, you know, for musicians, I think this, the biggest thing was sort of, uh, you know, weathering it intact you know uh you know all my kids moved home like like everybody else you know they all lost their jobs and 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 all my kids are pursuing music you know and the arts and so you know that that's you know precarious territory to begin with Mm. as i I well know i told them all to go be doctors and lawyers and they're not paying any attention (laughs) (laughs) apparently they like this this making music and acting and you know, all those guys. What are you going to do? But yeah, we, uh, you know, I think we did some cool things during COVID by making, you know, lemonade out of lemons kind of every day. I, uh, I made a jazz instrumental record with my two sons who are both really, uh, proficient in that kind of, world and thought process and, and, and that uh, was great by the way i reposted some clips on social media and that was terrific oh thanks very very much you know it's, i learned a lot you know i'm a I, i've been a, i've been a hillbilly you know <laughs> you know country folk and rock and roll player for a long time so you know every now and then i knew a jazz chord or two but you know they really put me through my paces and you know uh learning to play a bossa nova correctly is a little harder than you think you know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, oh, guys, I'm going to need to woodshed on this for a minute or two, you know. So, but it was fun. It was really, really fun. And uh, uh, my wife and I wrote a screenplay based on one of the short stories in my book, and it's in development. And uh, uh, we actually were ready to go, but uh, uh, with the next few steps, but, you know, the strike hit, and, you know, uh, everything's on hold until the strike is right. Which uh, I was just rereading your book the other night. It's such a wonderful collection for you to see the stars. Which uh, which story can you share? Which one it is? Yeah, uh, it's the story Isabel. Um, oh, it's about yes. a young lawyer who has a you know uh, a early 
early midlife crisis and meets another young Latina lawyer from my hometown. And uh, in, in the film, we cheated a little bit on, I'll just spoiler alert, you know, we, uh, we made her job instead of being an attorney like she is in the book, we made her a struggling singer-songwriter so we can add a musical element to the, to the story because we feel like if, if we don't do that, then we're just being really stupid. It's really foolish. Of it. It's like I do know how to, you know, I may be, I may be experimenting with all these other ways of telling stories, but I do know how to write songs. So. Well, that's wonderful. I look forward to that. Uh, by the way, I, since we've talked about this before, the Stephen King owns our station, so we should properly introduce you as a uh, Radney Foster. You may know him from Mister Mercedes. Oh yeah, exactly. I, that was such an honor. I always have known that he. Uh, first of all. Uh, I mean, his his book on writing should be in every you know senior in high school English class. Full stop. You know, just I mean, there's um, what the, you know. No matter what it is that you end up having, even if you think I don't have to really know how to write a story, it's like, well, even an accountant, you know, has to tell a story about how much you owe and how much you don't, and how much, and you know, and and. All of that is storytelling, and uh, um, you know uh, that his—it's just the best memoir meets primer on mm. how to write that I've ever read. Well, uh, you have always said you are a Texas singer-songwriter, and that has to make this recent induction into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame uh, means so much to you. What well, I've looked at the inductees through the years—my goodness, it's the history of American music. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, I, I was really sort of, you know, elated, of course, but, but just dumbfounded too, because it's, it's like, I know who's in that club and it's like, what, what the hell are they doing letting me, <laughs> you know, you can't help but have some of that, you know, uh, imposter syndrome break out in the sweat, you know, and, uh, cause, cause I, you know, cause Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson, you know, and, and Cindy Walker are, and, you know, are are the reason I write songs. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people in that um, in that club that just you know had a huge, huge influence on why I do things the way I do them. Since the last time we talked with you, we had a chance to talk with I know one of the one of the people who were a huge influence on you when you were starting out, and that was Randy Goodrum. Yeah, yeah, um, Randy was. Uh, a great friend. I mean, he just took me under his wing. You know, I was a, I was his, his uh, kids camp counselor, and uh, you know, he heard me. Uh, you know, I think the, the girls were just bugging him. It's like that. He's like, oh yeah, I just think this boy's cute. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he, he actually heard me sing, and he goes, I hear you write really sing. I hear you write songs, and that's like, yeah. So I, I played him a handful, and he. He really helped me uh, get into some publishers' offices uh, that I would never have gotten into. I don't think, and I still got turned down by a lot of people. But but he 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 was super kind and super helpful. And and I remember one time, you know, I was trading uh, babysitting, you know, my then fiance and I were you know babysitting his kids you know, in, in return for him helping me make some acoustic demos of my songs, you know, uh, cause that was so much more expensive. 
afternoon when he was spending way too much time on something, I, I was like, Randy, why are you doing this? You don't, I, I can see the gold record. You don't need, you know, a break on babysitter money. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I'm doing this because somebody did it for me. And it's going to take you a while because you're really different. But you're going to be really successful. And when you are, you need to remember this. And you need to, you know, give it back. Hello. And, uh, and it was really wise advice, and I never, I never forgot it. I love this story, too, about uh, you were in a college band, and uh, yeah. a, a guy came up to you and said, Hey, I, uh, I know this guy. He's a producer, and uh, I'm, you got to be skeptical when somebody says that to oh, you, but you yeah. gave him your number. Lit. He's, he's <laughs> a six-pack in, man. I mean, you know, this guy, so, so, you know, I gave, this guy says, Yeah, I got a buddy who's, uh, you know, uh, Producer in Nashville, sure, doesn't everyone, you know? <laughs> and uh, um, so, so I write my name and my phone number in a matchbook, like we used to do. You know, <laughs> it was the uh, the Facebook of its time. And, uh, um, and and but that was the payphone down the hall, and you know, and it was an honor system. You know, you you know write down a note, call your parents, you know, you tack it on a guy's door, and. Uh, and sure enough, two weeks later, I get this guy's name, and it says Brown Bannister, and it has a 615 area code. That's Nashville's area code. It's like, that guy might have been not a bit blind. And then I went, wait a second, I know that name. And I, uh, I remember I scrambled to find a Rolling Stone that had written an article about this new ingenue, Amy Grant, that was taking, you know, pop music by storm coming from the contemporary Christian world. And, uh, and every girl, you know, had that record in their, their dorm and Dan Brown had produced it. I was like, that's a real guy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I went and played him, you know, a half a dozen songs. And he said, man, you got to have a serious conversation with your mom and dad about doing this for a living. And that was, you know, that was kind of permission for the first time to go, Oh, uh, this might not be just a hobby. Did I read somewhere the first record you ever bought on your own was uh, Linda Ronstadt, Stone Ponies, Different Drum? Yeah, that was the first 45 I bought. Yeah. And, and were you one of those guys that would, you'd buy a record, and uh, if it was a 45, you'd, you'd read the record label and see who wrote it, who produced it. If it was oh, yeah. an album, you'd read the oh, liner notes. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with that stuff. I was obsessed with the little names on the 45, you know, the guys that wrote it, right? And it's and it's how you discover. It's like, oh well, you know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote that song together. It's like, oh okay, you know. Then you realize Merle Haggard wrote that song. You know, Buck Owens wrote that song. You know, and Buddy Holly wrote that song. You know, you, you, and then all of a sudden it's like, who is this Chris Christopherson guy? Wow, <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, you start you start learning just from that, and uh, um. But I, but I remember the first album I bought, my, my, my best friend and I rode our bikes down to the, um, to the toy store, Houghton's Toy Store. And we were going to go to the Houghton's Toy Store, and we're going to go to the Walgreens and eat you know, grilled cheese sandwiches for lunch, <laughs> and then go to a matinee, the movies, all for you know, very little money. Um, and uh, uh, so we... We're in there, and we realize that if we um, buy 
you know, we waited until the movies were over, but we went back to buy the records. We had them hold them. And, uh, but if we pooled our resources, he, you know, he could get Johnny Cash's live from San Quentin prison. Mm. And I could get, um, the, uh, the Beatles, Abbey Road record. <laughs> and then we could swap, right? Yeah. You know, we didn't. Yeah. So, which we did. And, which was, was awesome. You know, it, it lit up one of our houses for, you know, three or four days, and then you drive your bike over with that. A couple other records. It's up at your buddy's house. <laughs> We're talking with Radney Foster here on Downtown. Uh, you've been celebrating uh, the 30th anniversary of one of the great albums, I think, in, in country music history, Del Rio, Texas, 1959. I was looking back at, at my vinyl copy of the album and, and, and reading those liner notes and looking at those names and Boy, I had forgotten what an incredible array of talent you assembled with you. Guys like Dan Dugmore, Albert Lee, Glenn Duncan, Randy Scruggs, yeah. John Hyatt, Carl Jackson. Oh, yeah. it was. I was really fortunate in that, um, uh, you know, I had just I'd spent enough time in Nashville that I met a lot of those guys. And then um, my, you know, co-producer on that record was, uh, Steve Fischel, who was really starting to make a name for himself as a record producer, but had been, you know, a pedal steel player as a session guy and in the hot bands with Amy Lou Harris for 10 years. And, uh, you know, he he knew so many, you know, he knew Albert Lee. And the moment he said, Albert Lee's going to be in town, and I think we ought to just invite him to come and play on a couple of songs. Absolutely. <laughs> Are you kidding? And, uh, so it was it was pretty neat, and um, you know Mary Chapin Carpenter was pretty easy to call. I had been opening a bunch of gigs for her, and uh, and I knew that her voice would be perfect on Nobody Wins, and so you know things like that. It, it was a uh, you know uh, I, I met that was me meeting. I had never met Danny Dugmore uh, before, and and you know. But knew him by reputation, you know, as, as his pedal steel player. What I didn't know was that his right hand as a, an acoustic guitar player is as strong as anyone's. And he played the majority of the acoustic guitars on that record, too. And you worked uh, with another friend of our show uh, who uh, co-wrote a song and, and sang with you, the wonderful Kim Ritchie. She is a, uh, a delight and a dear, dear, dear friend. As a matter of fact, I think she and my wife are having a girls' afternoon out. They're going to go have a... Uh, a cocktail where a lot of things and go see the Barbie movie. Fantastic. And, uh, <laughs> my wife already saw it with our daughter, and uh, she's like, I got to go back with one of my girlfriends. So I was like, All right, <laughs> you go. Um, so, uh, but yeah, she's such an amazingly talented human being, and, and writing songs with her, uh, you know, was a joy, and then having her, her, uh, Thing on the record was, you know, uh, just icing on the cake. Well, it's just such a great album, obviously, uh, based so much on, on your experiences growing up in Del Rio, Texas. How did being in a border town and growing up there shape your songwriting? You know, I mean, I, absolutely there is the, the, the Mexican influence on me as a musician, as a guitar player, and as a songwriter. Because I, there's so many things that I heard, so many styles, um, and styles of finger picking, styles of, of uh, 
of music, you know, uh, be it, you know, mariachi or, or wapenga or, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of traditional, you know, ranchera. Now, there's a lot of traditional styles that I heard all the time growing up. Um, you know, 80% of my friends, Spanish was their first language. I was raised in a bilingual home. Um, you know, it, it was a deep part of the culture. And my first guitar was a, you know, gut string guitar from Mexico. Um, so, you know, it couldn't help but seep in. Um, and then, I, I, you know, the small town aspect of it, too, was, you know, my dad played guitar and, and sang, and, you know, he had a bunch of buddies who did the same, and, and they would sing, you know, they'd get together on a Saturday night, and, you know, with barbecue and beer, and everybody brought an instrument, and they'd sing anything from, you know, Amazing Grace to an Elvis song to a Fast Waller song to, uh, you know, to a Patsy Cline song. It just, it, it was, you know, easy to figure out, and they could sing along, you know, they were, they were wanting to have some fun playing music. You've got another album uh, that has an anniversary coming up. I think pretty soon it'll be the 25th anniversary of a phenomenal album. I love so much. See what you want to see. Yeah. I, you know, it's like if you start counting those anniversaries, it does get a little weird after a time. <laughs> but that, uh, you know, that record is a really interesting one for fans in that it got caught in the shutdown of Aristus Austin slash Texas division. Right. Um, and, you know, so it didn't sell that many records, uh, you know, because they just, they weren't available. You know, they just quit making them. And, uh, and, but then it, it had this sort of, you know, reimagining and retelling, you know, I think six or seven of the songs on that album have been, uh, you know, re-recorded by someone. Um, and uh, then, you know, when all of a sudden, you know, uh, streaming on, on Apple Music and Spotify happens, then those, those uh, that record sort of had a, a rebirth, you know, it sort of took off again. And uh, because so many of the songs from that record were, were hit singles for other people, you know, and, and so fans were like, "Oh wow, wait! This is the holy smokes! This is a great record." You know? Yeah, and, and really, one of the it might have been was it the first time that uh, the public got to hear Darius Rucker in a, in more of a country music realm. Oh yeah, for sure. He sang background vocals on "Rain on Sunday," and uh, I just knew he would. I just thought it would be cool. For him to find that, you know, he's a baritone like me. So I knew he wasn't, he wasn't ever going to be able to get on top of what I was singing. But I figured that if I had him sing underneath, that it would just have this, and in the right spot, you know, and Daryl Brown's a genius at being able to find whatever harmony he grew up, who was my co-producer. He, he grew up, you know, uh, singing and playing in church. So he knows every single note. And, uh, and so it was, it was great to, between the three of us sort of coming up with these cool parts for Darius to sing. And he, yeah, at the time he was filming, uh, Hootie and the Bluffers. So. so many great songs on that album. Two of my favorite compositions of yours. Uh, I love Angry Heart and The Lucky Ones. Oh, thank you so much. Those are, 
um, you know, real special songs. I actually, uh, Angry Heart, now and again, will uh, uh, get back in the in the in in the stack. You know, when I play them live, to pull something out uh, from that album that wasn't a hit for someone else. Um, but uh, but you know that it. I think I was on both of those songs. You know, I was really thinking about how much um, I loved, you know, Orbison and, and Van Morrison, mm. and and was really trying to take my cues from my love of those two particular both songwriting, you know, and and vocal style, and seeing what I couldn't come up with that would really stretch uh, in a way that I hadn't before, and. Uh, I went back and, and listened to another a terrific album, and uh, I, I always think country radio went downhill when I got out. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if country radio uh, simply played good music, then uh, songs from this world we live in would have been all over it. Uh, I, I love I mean, half of my mistakes. It's such a great song, and I, I think I read an interview somewhere where you, you talked about how that uh, – that was a great summation of, of your life in many ways. Yeah, I you know, um, it was really interesting in that I was I was writing with a guy named Bobby Howe, who is the one of the lead singers, there's two lead singers in the band of a band from out of South Carolina called the Blue Dogs. They're really great. And, you know, we were writing for they had just gotten a a major label deal and so we were writing for an album, you know, that they were gonna put out and uh and we'd written a song the, the the afternoon before, and he said, "Man, I've got an idea for tomorrow." I said, "Okay, what?" Is and he said, I, "I said, you know, scratch my head over it, you know, overnight when you you know, you know we'll work on it tomorrow morning." And uh, he said, "My father always quoted Disraeli. That's like the British politician." <laughs> and he said, "Yeah." I said, "All right, <laughs> that's that's different, but lay it on me." And Disraeli had always said that, you know, half of his mistakes were because he was impetuous and the other half because he was reticent. And I thought, okay, those are $3 words, which doesn't really work with country songs, but I get it, you know. And uh, um, and it kind of bugged me so much that I really went down in the basement and worked on that song for a couple hours. And I thought, I came to not finish this thing because I really <laughs> I need to make sure Bobby likes where this is headed. And, you know, and so a lot of my personal things. And then, you know, he added his the next morning. And, you know, but that song is really about the highs and lows of life and that you're, you know, and then, and the realization that, you know, you're going to make mistakes and, you know, that's how we learn as human beings. You know, not all, not all of them are, are as bad as you think they are when you're, when you have hindsight, you know, when you look at it 10 years later and it's like, uh, you know, I learned something from that mistake and then, and I should have. And, I think you. I think you could have found a way to work in reticent. I, I've heard you rhyme monosyllabic in a song. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I have been known to do that on a song or two. And um, but the question is not whether you can, you know, uh, shoehorn that in, but whether you should shoehorn that word in there. So that's always my that's always my bar. Does that work or does that not work? You know. I also, one of my favorite lyrics is on that album, too. She bought him a drink 
and they discuss the price of sin. What a great story in the kindness oh, of strangers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was uh, uh, really kind of born out of uh, my, uh, I have a very dear college friend who went on to become an Episcopal priest, and she's uh, quite a famous woman these days. I mean, she was a CNN hero, and, and her name is Becca Stevenson. And uh, she's been a huge influence on my life. And she started a, uh, an organization called Thistle Farms. It's a, you know, uh, and a, a place called Magdalene House in Nashville, and it, which is really all about, you know, helping trafficked women get off the street, get sobriety, get rid of their, you know, arrest records and, and, and kind of get, you know, back on track. And it's an amazing, amazing place. And, but just from hearing those stories and then just taking that sense of, you know, John Steinbeck where, you know, man helps man in the most unusual of circumstances and sometimes in the worst of circumstances, you know, is when we shine at our best. And so I remember writing that song and then playing it for Becca. It's like, the, does this ring true? She said, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, uh, and, and made several comments, you know, about many of the women that she had worked with and friends that she worked with and do, you know, and just, you know, just because you're a sex worker doesn't mean that you're not a kind hearted individual. Mm. I was revisiting uh, everything I should have said and, and a wonderful collaboration with, well, the pride of Old Town, Maine, right up the road from us, the great Patty Griffin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Patty's uh, been a friend, and uh, I think we've been had a, been mutually been fans of each other's music for a long, long time. Um, I have uh, several, a funny story of, of uh her, I played a I played a ranch rodeo and I don't know if you know what a ranch rodeo is uh, up in Maine, but um, rather than like there's the professional rodeo, which is all there's a series of events that are you know all about daredevilry dare you know, a lot of ways, but then and some of it is about like the roping skill stuff is really about what real ranch work is, and um, and a ranch rodeo is all uh, working you know. So it could be anything from you know cutting out cattle to you know and it and it's oftentimes a youth thing. But I was playing this ranch rodeo and I got a call from her road manager and she's like she wants to bring her boyfriend out and uh, to go dancing. He doesn't know how to two step. She wants to teach him. And uh, <laughs> I think I know where this is going. <laughs> so I so so I'm like I know who her boyfriend is, you know. But and I'm like, dude, do we get extra security? So no one's going to recognize him. Right? I'm like, you're kidding me. And so I was like, no. Nah. He said, no, nah, man. He just fits in. They just think he's an old hippie. I said, well, yeah, he's wearing cowboy boots, right? And wearing jeans and cowboy boots. And, and uh, so it was Robert Plant. And I'm, I'm standing on stage, and we're playing. And Patty, I thought that she'd get there early and come by. And, you know, she waited till after the show to say, uh, come in and say goodbye. Introduce us. <laughs> I'm, I'm standing there on stage playing, and... and you know, all the dancers are dancing in a circle, you know, in front of us, like we do in Texas. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, Robert Plant and Patty Griffin come <laughs> dancing by. I was like, oh, I sit my hat, you know. 
while are enjoying yourself. I love that. Well, I mentioned country music, country radio, and uh, everything is so fragmented these days and music that that would have been played on country radio uh, a generation ago and i, I look at your work uh, people like our friend roseanne cash patty griffin uh, jason isbell brandy carlisle i guess would qualify these days as americana but there, there's so much good music out there that isn't getting that radio play yeah it it is a um you know there there's a there's a level at which um you know the 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 advent of streaming and of uh, you know social media has sort of made it where things can blow up that you might not have seen in the past or might have had you know too many gatekeepers at radio to be able to um, to to have a way to get to the public you know. But there's also the opposite effect. There's so much clutter. There's just so much volume being thrown at you, mm. you know, that it's hard to focus. And 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 there are some really great singer-songwriters out there who are, you know, being easily overlooked and shouldn't be, you know, that uh, I think are phenomenal. Um, if it, I'll just I'll I'll toss out some names, you know, right now. It's like I think in in both Americana and in the country, I think women are just setting the woods on fire so many ways. And, you know, two of my favorite female um, country singers are, uh, one is, is uh, Sonny Sweeney. Yes. And, uh, yeah. The other is Aaron Hendler. And if you haven't, you know, if your fans out there, Sonny Sweeney is S-U-N-N-Y-S-W-E-E-N-E-Y, Sweeney. And then Aaron Enderlin, uh, is uh, E-N-D-E-R and L-I and Endler. Um, both just phenomenal singers and songwriters. And, 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 and you know, Aaron uh, had hits that she's written for other folks, too, that is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Like, you know, my favorite Leanne Womack song, I'm Always Your Last Call, I know you mentioned you're working on this screenplay. Uh, will there be another collection of short stories at some point? Yeah, I'm actually working on a second book of short stories. Um, and I'm about halfway through right now. Um, it's taken a little longer just because of touring and, and a lot of the press stuff with this, um, with this, you know, anniversary. And then I, I really took some time to um, produce, time out to produce the Randy Rogers Band's latest record. And I'm working with another Texas singer-songwriter on his record. And um, I'm in the early stages of that. So, you know, I don't have a huge block of time just to be able to sit down and just write and sort of crank it out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing prose a couple of days a week, you know. And, um, so it's going a little slower than I would like, but it's going, you know. So my editor so far has been very happy with what I've been doing. You'll be up here in the Northeast for some shows uh, August 15th at City Winery in New York City, on the 16th in Woodbridge, New Jersey, Music on Main, and uh, then at Saratoga Springs, New York on August 18th. I think that's as close to us as you get. Seven-hour drive. Maybe I can Maybe I can pull that off. Yeah, you know, Saratoga, you know, it's a, it's, it's a weekend play. Figure out how to make a, a weekend in the Catskills out of that deal, you know. So I think we're playing on a Friday night. And, uh, 
I, I realize that yeah, seven hours is a is a, a bit of a haul. Um, and uh, and I'm not sure. Uh, you know, uh, don't know that I have a anything any closer coming up real soon. Um, there's always possibilities for next year. It's not like I haven't played New England in the past. You know. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that in the meantime. Congratulations again on uh, the induction into the Texas Heritage Songwriters Hall of Fame. It is great to talk with you once again, Radney. Appreciate so much you making a little time for us today. Hey, man, it's my pleasure, Rich. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. Radney Foster with us on Downtown. When we return after this from Cross Insurance, we'll talk with comedian and writer Josh Gondelman. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I held on to the hurt, wrestled it to the ground. I fought it like heaven and hell, and I lost every round. There was a Foster right there, a song called Angry Heart from his great album, See What You Want to See. Up next on Downtown, a longtime friend of the show, a terrific stand-up comedian and an Emmy award-winning writer for shows like Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and Jesus and Marrow. He is out on strike on two counts right now. We had a chance to talk about the strike from the perspective of writers and actors with our friend Josh Gondelman. Hi there, Josh. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me back. I have not been double-fisting picket signs, <laughs> but I, ha- I do feel if I wanted to, that would be my prerogative. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the issues, because I, I'm not sure the average, uh, the average person understands completely what's going on. What were the issues that originally drove the Writers Guild to go on strike? So when so much of TV and film made the switch from... Uh, linear broadcast, you know, regular TV networks and uh, theatrical film releases to streaming, the the distribution of so much of TV and film changed and the compensation just didn't come with it. So it, the compensation is lagging behind. Writer wages are going down. Uh, we're really getting kind of squeezed. And then, of course, there's the issue of AI, which is something that's come up a lot more recently. And so we're really just trying to get this new contract that is fair compensation for people doing their jobs that they love to do and that keeps writing a like sustainable career so people can have families and afford to pay their rent or mortgage. Well, and as people know about the success of streaming services, but what they don't know is whether it's writers or actors, the compensation that you get for that is but a fraction of what you would normally get. And the idea of residuals making people rich, that doesn't happen. 
Yes, that's right. I think that residuals are a huge issue, right? So if you are on a TV show or write for a TV show that gets played on broadcast TV uh, a bunch of times, then you get you know you get compensated for that reuse for the work you did, um, or if it or if it spins off into new markets. But if you're on a streaming show or you write for a streaming show, you get a flat rate per year that's maybe a couple hundred bucks. And, and, and even though it could be watched infinitely in that time, you know, and, and Netflix and especially loves to brag about this is the most watched visual image in the history of the human race. And yet they can't pay out a fair residual. Well, and I have so many friends who are actors and the vast majority of actors are are doing things like a regional theater and maybe do a six-week show and then are looking for their next gig. Very few actors out there are working nonstop, and it's that time between gigs that, that make compensation and fair compensation important. But also uh, the, this idea, as you mentioned, with AI, the disturbing idea that, that came up recently that the producers could somehow take your image as a, a background player in a scene and use that in perpetuity, that's insane. Yeah, it really seems unfair that you would do a half a day's work as a background performer and then and as a stipulation of that, sign away your likeness forever. It really seems like an unfair uh an unfair stipulation that that was allegedly offered in that, you know, as a condition in the contract with SAG-AFTRA. And it's just really these companies, you know, what what the writers and actors are asking for, the Writers Guild contract, the requests total about 2% of the operating profits of these companies. And they make so much money, tens of billions of dollars. And we're just acting, excuse me, we're just asking for a cut that's, hey, we, um, we do this work. We deserve a share of how much money it generates. And the idea that the producers would suggest, as they some at least have apparently done, that hey, we just ride this out for a while, and as as soon as people start losing their houses, they'll come to the table with a better attitude. Yeah, I mean it's pretty cold, right? Like I I think there were internally we talked about like obviously they're just fear mongering. Like maybe they mean that, maybe they don't like who knows if that's the real strategy but the fact that they were willing to even anonymously give that quote to deadline the the trade magazine just really speaks to that they they want to be cruel to writers right they want to be seen as people who are willing to inflict cruelty on their employees and they think that that makes them look powerful and not like petty and pathetic which is uh, you know I think was a miscalculation on their part I think people really saw through how like vicious and gross that was to say out loud we're talking with josh gondelman here on downtown as you mentioned you're you're a member of both unions but how important was it from a writer's perspective to have the actors join when sag after voted to be part of the strike so they you know they it we really felt like we were going to be able to leverage our collective bargaining to get a fair contract uh overall but it has been such a wonderful infusion of energy and enthusiasm and uh, participation on the picket lines. And, but I will say there are so many sag after members who have been out on the lines in solidarity even before their strike from day one, they were there. And I, I've been getting emails from my 
SAG after reps and 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 from my local chapter of the guild saying like here's where you can go in solidarity with the WGA. So like their participation has predated their actual strike vote, which is really incredible. And and, and that kind of solidarity from SAG-AFTRA, from um, crew members who have respected picket lines at great personal sacrifice often, um, other unions, members of Starbucks Union and the uh, Teamsters Union uh, have been like really, really heartening and inspiring. Like that, that this has gone across the labor movement it has really meant a lot. Well, and it's obvious, I think, how significant this is that it's been 60 years since both the writers and the actors were on strike at the same time. Yeah, it's been a long time, and that got uh, that strike really laid the groundwork for residual payments for films being uh, rerun on TV, right? Like, it, it it was really important then. It's really important now. And I think people are really seeing that it's not just, like, a Hollywood problem. This is kind of a wall-to-wall labor issue of giant corporations trying to squeeze as much value as they can out of their workforce and compensate as poorly as they can get away with. And do you feel like, whether it's writers or actors, that this is important because this is a real turning point in where the industry goes moving forward? I think so. I think it doesn't seem like the the streaming toothpaste is going to go back into the tube. Mm. And I think that's okay as long as the uh, companies that are making all these profits from their streaming service or telling shareholders they're about to start making profits from these streaming services that uh, compensate the people that make these uh, as, as this entertainment and this the, these products that they sell. You know, I, I think if, as long as that's fair, the distribution, it's, it's okay however they want to do it as long as they pay a fair cut of all this money that, that's coming in. Now, I know there are some independent productions that have been given permission uh, by SAG-AFTRA to go ahead and continue mm-hmm. production. Uh, how are you uh, when you see those people continuing to work? Is that okay? You know, I think if it's approved by the the union, it is okay for people to be working on it, and it's, they're not doing anything wrong. But I do think it's been a meaningful show of solidarity with the people that are not working and can't be working when when a star like Viola Davis says, you know, I don't feel right even participating in this production with a waiver um, while there's a strike happening. So I think that is like a really meaningful sacrifice that that some people have been in the position to make. I think there have been a couple other big name people that have done that. And it's been like and so so it's really heartening to see people do that because I, you know, I, I want everybody to make a living. I, I, I like really feel for the people that are out of work because the AMPTP refuses to negotiate in good faith and restart production. Um, but I do think I, you know, I, I think it's really powerful when people have been choosing to withhold their labor, even in light of these waivers. Well, we are uh, firmly behind the writers and the actors and, and hope you get this resolved in a way that is uh, fair to uh, all of you. And I'm pretty sure the producers are still going to make out okay on that. I want to talk about a couple other things. Uh, love the new uh, the new That's Marvelous that showed up in my inbox. And uh, you know, good to know that all of us who were waiting for our alien overlords to take over, that our patience has been rewarded. 
Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm glad I, you know, I, I've been writing this newsletter uh, once a week for for about nine months now, I think. And finally, some actual good news. <laughs> maybe aliens are real. And maybe they'll do a better job with everything once they take over. I feel like that is certainly a possibility. Uh, you continue to do uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I, I have to tell you, and I always love them, but your your most recent show shoes were fabulous. Thank you. I really love those. I I got this pair of New Balances. They were a, a, a release that was exclusive to Japan, but I found them online for less than their their retail price, and I felt terrific about it. It was practically, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm practically saving money buying these sneakers. <laughs> I know a big uh, celebration recently in the house. Uh, Busy, did I see Busy turn 16? Yep, that's right. Our beloved senior pug is 16, which is so old. We worked it out. It's 112 in dog years, which is older than I think most buildings. So <laughs> she's She's really hanging in there. She's a little, she, she's a little wobbly on her hind legs, but otherwise is really doing great for a dog that old. And we've decided we're going to be the kind of jerks that throw a birthday party for a dog as long as we're going to have a dog that keeps kicking after 16. Well, I think that's great. We wish a busy well. And want to mention, too, uh, some upcoming dates for you. You'll be in Washington, D.C., on uh, August 6th, you'll be in Nashville at Zany's on August 8th, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina in the Comedy Zone on August 9th, and then uh, close to home at uh, Tanglewood in Lenox on August yeah. 13th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Lenox, I'm doing a taping for Circle Round, which is the, the public radio family show, that, you know, children's show that's um, based on folklore from around the world. And it was I did it uh, recording with them last year, and it was so much fun. I'm so excited to go back. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Josh, it is great to talk with you. Really appreciate you making time to uh, explain the writers and the actors' perspective on all of this. And again, uh, we, we wish you luck in getting that all settled in a, a timely and a fair fashion. And we'll catch up with you again before too long. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Talk soon. That's Josh Gondelman with us here on Downtown. Our thanks to Josh for joining us this week. Thanks to Radney Foster as well. Well, and of course to you for spending a little time with us. We remind you that Downtown is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.